Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 172, A Collapsing Empire, Mikhail Gorbachev. Loved in the West and loathed in Russia, Mikhail Gorbachev elicits these emotions unlike any other international figure in modern history. Now, you may argue that Adolf Hitler was loathed by much of the world and loved by his people, but that was during his leadership. With Gorbachev, the hatred seems to be in retrospect. To see the depth of the disdain the Russian people feel for him, you can look at the 1996 election for the presidency of Russia, where he received all of one-half of one percent of the vote. And this was against Boris Yeltsin, whose approval ratings weren't much better. In today's podcast, we're going to focus on how he became so despised in his own country, whereas he is thought of so highly in most of the rest of the world. Born on March 2, 1931, into a peasant family in Privolnoy Stavropol Krai, his parents were Ukrainian and Russian. When he was two years old, one of the major famines of Soviet history occurred, which, according to Gorbachev, quote, and that terrible near, nearly half the population of my native village, Privolnoy, starved to death, including two sisters and one brother of my father. Now, instead of rehashing his rise within the Communist Party, which he joined in 1952, I'll instead refer you to episode 104, where I covered his early life. I'd like to go into the explanation of why Gorbachev did what he did when he took control of the Soviet Union in 1985. Before we can do that, we need to lay some groundwork. It starts with Joseph Stalin and the system he set up. It is marvelously explained by Martin McCauley in the foreword of Gorbachev's memoirs. Quote, Stalin became head of government in 1941 and remained so until his death in 1953. His concept of government was to view it as the mechanism for implementing decisions taken by him and his associates. Who was to supervise the implementation of the plans? That function fell to the party apparatus. Who supervised the party apparatus and everyone else? The political police. Hence, there were competing elites, all being juggled by Stalin, to ensure that a coalition did not form which could topple him. He further goes on to write, quote, Stalin's system was effective but very wasteful. Since the decisions of the party could not be criticized, conformity became the rule. If there was not an order to do something... Initiative was inadvisable. Stalinism was very hierarchical, and as the economy became more complex, Moscow's ability to regulate it declined. Moscow attempted to ensure implementation of its plans by taking every decision and depriving localities of decision-making. For instance, the hotel menu in Tbilisi, Georgia, was set in Moscow. Now just think about the system that Gorbachev was trying to reform. When restaurant menus are created in a central location and not in the place that will be using it. The system that Stalin created was great if you wanted to control all aspects of life and keep your power base safe, but useless and counterproductive if you wanted an efficient economy and society. What I believe happened is that any type of reform that Gorbachev was to try would have doomed the Soviet Union. It would have taken away the very fibers that kept the communists in power, the centralized control over the country. Take that away by giving more control to the people and the towns and cities they live in. You lose control of the entire country.
You no longer had to obey the Muscovite bureaucrats, which made it hard to justify their existence. In 1985, Gorbachev began his reform policies, which led to glasnost, or openness, and perestroika, known as restructuring, along with programs of democratization and acceleration of economic development. These policies were approved at the 27th Congress of the CPSU in February of 1986. One of Gorbachev's early moves was to replace the old party leader, Andrei Gromyko, with Eduard Shevardnadze the, as Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mr. Nyet, also known as Mr. No, as Gromyko was known as in the West, had been in his position for around 28 years. Gorbachev believed that new blood was needed to enact reforms, and this was to be just the beginning. The changes he was to propose, though, were big in words, but small in reality. He said in a speech given in 1985, quote, Many of us see the solution to your problems in resorting to market mechanisms in place of direct planning. Some of you look at the market as a lifesaver for your economies. But comrades, you should not think about lifesavers, but about the ship. And the ship is socialism. You see in this speech his background in the communist way. Remember, he was born and raised for 22 years under the leadership of Joseph Stalin, then another 32 years under four other staunchly communist socialist leaders. It was ingrained in his psyche, and he would have had a hard time giving those beliefs up, which he still clings on to this day. There was also a fear of reform in the Soviet Union, which came out of the Khrushchev years. When Brezhnev took over, he put an immediate halt to reform, so those in power from that era had to be moved out of their positions of power. Reform had to move slowly for that reason, but there was another realization that Gorbachev had to come to grips with that kept the pace of change slow, and that was discovering how bad things really were in the Soviet economy. As I've mentioned in past podcasts about this time, the Soviet economy was in a state of collapse. The government had been borrowing money from its citizens' bank accounts to the point where there was no money left to honestly fund the government. The biggest drag on the economy was the massive military-industrial complex. The official party line about spending on defense was put at approximately 20 billion rubles annually. That was pretty much a bold-faced lie. The military believed that it was better to keep the real number a secret, to not only appease the Soviet people, but to confuse the West. In 1989, Gorbachev decided to be more open about things and claimed that the military was actually spending about 77 billion rubles a year. To quote a paper from Warwick University, The new figure was much discussed at the time. Most likely, it was still an underestimate. But now it was a two-thirds truth rather than a deliberate lie. The Soviet military-industrial complex was gradually being forced out into the light of day. So what was the upshot of this release of information? The government could no longer dismiss the drag on the economy that the military was causing. At $20 billion a year, no Communist Party member could blame the defense expenses, and they had no reason to doubt the accuracy of the data. Gorbachev himself admitted later in his life that he was astounded at the enormity of the problem. He had no idea that the treasury was empty. Now the truth was out, and that was shaking up the country, 
But an incident that occurred some 30 years ago was to show how secretive and denialist the Soviet government was, and that was the meltdown of the nuclear reactor at Chernobyl. On April 26, 1986, a huge release of radioactive material flowed over large areas of Ukraine and Eastern Europe. The Soviet government denied anything had happened. Shevardnadze was to say that the cover-up and the subsequent admittance of the explosion, quote, tore the blindfold from our eyes. The explosion ripped the veil off of the corruption and failure of the communist system. Glasnost was the offshoot of Chernobyl. After that, the number of banned books was reduced, and the people began to see what the rest of the world had known. Similarly to when the troops returned to Russia from Western Europe after defeating Napoleon in the early 19th century, now too the people could see how much worse the Soviet Union was than the West. Gorbachev had even admitted as much to his wife Reza when he said to her, quote, We can't go on living this way. The changes that were rapidly expanding, leading to perestroika, were to not only affect the economy, but all of Soviet life. As Gorbachev was to say about the reforms, not only the economy, but all other sides of social life, social reforms, the political system, the spiritual and ideological sphere, the style and work methods of our party and of all our cadres, restructuring is a capacious world. I would equate restructuring with revolution, a genuine revolution in the hearts and minds of the people. The problem, as I stated before, was that while Gorbachev and his partners in reform were all gung-ho about changing things, but the one thing that they couldn't be bought into reforming was the central planning structure of the economy. It was one thing that needed the most change and the one that they did the least to change. By 1988, he had rid the party of most of the old-time hardliners, but the people he put into place were beginning to disagree with Gorbachev on the breadth and speed of reforms. Most of them saw that the communist way of life was teetering on the edge, and they were right. Others, like Boris Yeltsin, were screaming that reform was going way too slow, and they were right. Try as he might, Gorbachev was in the proverbial vice of between, being between a rock and a hard place. He set in motion a reform package that was necessary to revive our morbid economy and socialist system at the cost of the system that had been his way of life. Had he done nothing, it is likely that the communist way would have imploded, maybe in a very violent manner. By now you can think that nothing that Gorbachev was doing was positive. But we have to look outside of Russia to see what his actions did for the world as a whole and why he is so admired in the West. He signed a major nuclear arms reduction agreement with the United States in December of 1987. Understand that he knew that he had to pare down the expenses of the military-industrial complex at the time. So this was done not just because he wanted to save the world and to prevent war, but he had to do it economically. Then, in 1988, speaking to a meeting at the United Nations, he denounced the Soviet commitment made by Lenin and promoted by Stalin to spread communism around the world. By 1989, Eastern Bloc communist regimes were collapsing and nationalistic movements were gaining steam in places like Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. But the big shakeup 
was the movement in Ukraine. Centralized control of these regions, something that the Bolshevik party had created and maintained since the end of the Russian Civil War, and that the heart of Soviet power was collapsing. In 1991, the Communist Party in the USSR was in disarray, especially after the attempted coup in August. August 24th was the end of communist rule, and by December 25th, Gorbachev was out of power, being replaced by Boris Yeltsin. As with Boris Yeltsin, I don't know if anyone could have done much better than Mikhail Gorbachev, given the situation he was presented with. The Soviet economy was a horrible mess, with little or no hope of improvement in the foreseeable future. Many in Russia blame him for the problems that Yeltsin inherited, but as you heard, I blame the communist system that Lenin created and Stalin entrenched for much of what happened. To the West, he was the giver of peace, the man who responded to Ronald Reagan's call to tear down this wall with the allowance of Germany to determine its own destiny. He was the man who allowed the Eastern Bloc nations to be free of the yoke of Moscow with far less violence than could have happened. To many Russians, he was the man who caused their country to lose face in the eyes of the world, to greatly diminish their influence and prestige, which in many ways is why Vladimir Putin seems to be acting the way he is. Many believe that Putin needs to restore the image of Russia that Gorbachev stained. Who's right in their assessment of his legacy? You are. Demon or savior? Depends on where you live. To yet again quote Karl Marx as I did last time, quote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please, under conditions of their own choosing. Gorbachev made his own history, but under the most difficult of conditions. Unlike his predecessors, he couldn't create the conditions necessary to succeed. He did what he could, and we are left with the consequences. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time with a kind of short episode on the legacy of two rulers of the USSR, Konstantin Chernenko and Yuri Andropov. So now, as always, Dasvidanya svidanya i spasiba bolshoya.